Hello and welcome to the Church Doctor Podcast. I am your host, Wayne Ball, and I am glad that you have decided to tune into the podcast today. And if you would like to get a hold of the show, you could you can contact me either on our Facebook page, the Church um, uh, the Church Doctor on Facebook, or you can go to the Church Doctor Podcast at gmail.com and you can send me an email. Sorry, the Facebook is the Church Doctor Podcast. It's on Facebook. And um, so you can get a hold of me there. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, um, I would be more than happy to uh, entertain those. And so we're continuing on in our kind of a pre-set of uh, bibliology where I'm actually talking about how we got our Bibles. And uh, on our last podcast, podcast I left off at, uh, we was getting ready to begin to talk about New Testament manuscripts. And the reason that these manuscripts are important is because it really is a, a really a witness or an attestation to what was originally written. And so the more uh, manuscripts that we have, the more that we can really piece together in a, in a uh, process called textual criticism what the original said. Since we don't have the originals and we have all these copies and copies of copies, uh, we can have a really good idea of what the original said. In fact, I think at this time we have over 6,000 uh, fragments and manuscripts uh, to really be able to piece together. But an interesting thing that I came across was that even if you was to lose all of the fragments, all of the scrolls, all of the manuscripts, we would still have enough to put together the whole New Testament from sermons from the patristic fathers, you say, well, who are those? Well, those are the church leaders right after the apostles. And so we, they, you know, they, they taught sermons and they taught lessons and they, they quoted the New Testament so much that we could actually get what the New Testament said from their sermons and testimonies. And so even if we had no manuscripts, but we got a, a lot of manuscripts. And, uh, and I think this is important, again, when you're kind of dealing with guys like Bart Ehrman or those who try and cast doubt on the Bible, you can be able to have confidence that what we have in the New Testament and the Old Testament is exactly what God wanted us to have. And, uh, you know, the story of Bart Ehrman, uh, for those of you who don't know him, uh, he was a great, uh, and still is, I mean, he's a great scholar in the sense that he can critically think. He knows uh, the Greek language well. He's into textual criticism. In fact, he was the last student to study under Bruce Metzger. Now, Bruce Metzger, if you don't know him, was the premier, and I believe still is, even though he's passed away. He's a premier New Testament scholar, and he really excelled and specialized in textual criticism. So looking at old scrolls, manuscripts, codices, and uh, be able to piece together. And so uh, Bruce Metzger was um, Bart Ehrman's teacher. And so, you know, anybody said under Metzger was really looked upon highly. And so uh, Bart Ehrman, once he began this journey into looking at manuscripts and doing textual criticism, he came to realize, and I, you know, for whatever reason, oh man, I don't know if the New Testament's trustworthy because we have copies of copies of copies and there's all kinds of textual variants. And he, he, he even makes the claim that there's over, uh, I think, uh, 400,000 textual variants. And we'll get into what that is uh, here in a moment. Um, but it's important to understand. So, you know, he went from all of this to, um, you know, he went from being a, a conservative Christian to being an agnostic. And I think now he's full-blown atheist. So it's kind of a sad demise that uh, Bart Ehrman has gone through. 
because he allowed these things here to kind of trip him up. So I don't want that to happen to you. And I think sometimes if you watch the History Channel or you come across a friend who's uh, well-versed in this stuff, even you could be maybe, uh, they get you to doubt and think, oh, no, maybe the New Testament isn't reliable. So, you know, we really don't want that to happen. And so it's important that we learn these sorts of things when we're talking about the Bible. Not too many people really teach this stuff, and I just think it's important. So, um, as far as uh, New Testament manuscripts, we have over 6,000 manuscripts, fragments, dating from the late 1st century to all the way through the 2nd century and into the 3rd century. And um, we have biblical and extra-biblical manuscripts. And so, uh, not only do you find the 27 books of the New Testament, but you're also finding books of the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha. Um, you're finding all kinds, you know, the Gospel of Thomas, the Assumptions of Moses, Bell and the Dragon. I mean, all of these different extra-biblical books. And so, and those are good. I mean, I, I, if you've ever read some of the Apocrypha, it's really, uh, they're really interesting for from a historical perspective, not that they're scripture, um, but they're very good historical for historical purposes. Later on in later sessions, we'll talk about why the New Testament letters were chosen and how they can you know how that whole process went but I won't get into that now. So when we talk about New Testament manuscripts you, you want to first begin to think about families and families are are schools of scribes who uh, um, translated and copied text texts they're called scribes. And so you have three main kind of families. You have the Benzentine family. Some of these are geographical. Most of them are just style. Uh, you have the Benzentine family. Now, this is the most available, numerous um, of, of all the three. And uh, the Benzentine uh, manuscripts were used to form Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And you say, well, who was Erasmus? Well, Erasmus, at the, time of the, um, at the time of the Reformation, he was a Catholic apologist. And so him and Martin Luther debated each other. And so one of the good things that came from Erasmus was his Greek New Testament. You know, it was like a full New Testament. Uh, because you got to remember, up until this time period, uh, no one carried around a full Bible because it would have been too too much to handle. I mean, especially if you're talking the Old Testament, which all the Old Testament were scrolls. I mean, one scroll, one book could be two or three heavy scrolls. So no one carried around their Bibles in the sense that we do, where we have all 66 books. That was unheard of until this time period that we're talking about with Martin Luther and and Erasmus and the printing press. And and so I think, you know, sometimes we take that for granted. You know, most of us, myself included, we, I have multiple copies of the Bible, different study Bibles, I don't know, 25 or 30 sitting on my shelf. But back before this time period, uh, man, you were lucky to have one book, a page of a book, a few verses of the Bible, and so you know we are really, we really are rich in the fact that we have the Word of God. The problem is we've gotten too comfortable with the Word of God, and you know we're beginning to just think of it as just another book, or you know, oh, it's a nice religious text when it really is the inspired Word of God. And uh, having too much of something can be a bad thing, and I think that's kind of where we're at now. We're in a, an embarrassment of riches. When it comes to the Word of God, so you have the Benzentine. It's also the Textus Receptus, uh, as far as the Benzentine is the uh, basis for the Textus Receptus. And what is that? That that is a text that was kind of re- kind of deemed to be what the original autographs were. 
So we don't have the original autographs, but the Textus Receptus is just like having the original autographs. That And it was based on the Benzentine family. But there's more than that. You have the Alexandrian family. The Alexandrian family tends to be older and have more difficult readings. And what does that mean? Well, sometimes in Greek you have phrases that are clunky and really hard even when you're translating. Uh, when I was taking Greek and we had to do a lot of translation uh, work, uh, you ran across just certain phrases that were very hard to really get your head around. And so the Alexandrian um, uh, manuscript family was kind of in that, in that line there. Then you have the Western family. And uh, again, uh, these are not as old as Alexandrian, but they tend to be easy reading. In fact, a lot of them were paraphrased uh, with the harder sayings. And, you know, that's, that's kind of that's nice um, when you're wanting to read the Bible and translate it to have something that's a little bit more easy to read. And so um, I think it, all that philosophy as far as of the philosophy of translations uh, boils down even to today. You know, sometimes, you know, we have what's, what we call literal translations, which are not very literal, but, you know, they're kind of trying to stick with the Greek phraseology and Greek, you know, the, the best job that you can do putting it into English. And, but then you also have uh, paraphrase Bibles like the NLT where it's more for readability not so much accuracy with the with the Greek or Hebrew. And so I don't have a problem with either one, you know, because one is more of a dynamic equivalent and the other one's more of a meaning uh, equivalent. And so uh, one of them is like the like the NASB, that's, that's my favorite, the 95 uh, version. Uh, that is a kind of a literal um, translation, kind of like a dynamic equivalence. Um, and I, when I translate, I use it as a base text when I translate from the uh, Greek to the English and even to the Hebrew to the English. Um, but is it kind of clunky at times? When I say clunky, it, it's sometimes it's even hard to read in the English because it's kind of weird because they're trying to stick really to what the Greek form was. And I appreciate that. But then you have like the NLT, and basically the NLT is meaning-based, so... What they do is they do some a lot of interpreting for you. So what did Paul mean when he said, therefore, brothers, brethren, you know, uh, let your bodies be a living sacrifice? What did he mean by that? What he meant, is it only the brothers? Is it only the guys? Or is it the girls too? Well, no, Paul meant everybody. So in their translations, they said, therefore, brothers and sisters. I don't think it had anything but doing, but, you know, like a lot of people when this first came out was like, oh, they're woke or... You know, they're trying to be uh, gender-specific. And I just think that they were just trying to go by, well, what was the meaning? Who was Paul meaning to lump into, therefore, brethren? And, it, and they came up with, well, it's, it was everybody. So, therefore, say brothers and sisters. And I think that's helpful if, you're, um, if you've never read the Bible, you've never been in Christianity, and you never really heard this terminology. I think that can be really helpful to somebody, you know, a new, a, a brand-new reader of the Bible. So... I'm definitely not against the paraphrases. Now, I don't really get into the message or, you know, the briar, uh, I don't know, what I think was a cotton patch Bible. It's just, I mean, that's really one man's kind of paraphrase, you know, Eugene Peterson stuff. And I don't really get into that. But anything else like the NLT, um, I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head that were paraphrased Bibles. I think. Uh, I can't think of any, sorry, I can't think of any right now, but uh, there's a few out there, some of those older ones. 
And uh, I just think that, you know, they have their place. The Living Bible, I think that's what it is, the Living Bible. And uh, that's really a paraphrase, easy readability. Uh, You just have to know that when you're reading that, most of that has already been interpreted for you, for you to be able to understand it. So, anyway, sorry I took out on that tangent, but um, I thought it was important to say. Um, When you're talking about manuscripts, older manuscripts, uh, you're talking about uh, manuscripts that were written in what's called unicles. Unicles is basically all capital letters, and the oldest manuscripts they wrote in all capital letters with no spaces in between the words, and uh, it's, they're very hard to read. You really have to know your language, and you have to know you know case endings and, and verbal endings, and you really have to know your stuff to be able to read it. Uh, some of the later manuscripts turn to what's called minuscules, and those are lowercase, cursive type of writing. So just from the get-go, if you're wanting to kind of date a, a manuscript, what they were written in would give you a clue. This is an earlier version. This is a later version. You only know that by the unicorns and the minuscules. So um, that's one way you can kind of give a time period of when that manuscript was, was wrote or written. And so let's look at some important New Testament manuscripts. The first one I think is the most popular one because it's the earliest one or one of the earliest ones. It was dated around 110 to 125 AD, and that's P52. Now, P is for parchment because it's written on parchment. And 52 is the uh, the number of, of the scroll that was found. And it contains a few verses of John uh, 18, and uh, it's the size of a credit card. So this is a fragment. And uh, so you have um, this fragment, and you have two or three verses on one side and a couple of verses on the other side. And he's able to read it, and, and, and they compared it to John 18, and it was exact. And so some 30 years after it was written, a portion of that was found, and it was exactly what we have today in our Bibles, exactly. And so that builds a little bit of confidence in us, just that alone, to say, you know, scribes done a good job. When they were translating the Bible, they were very careful. And uh, they, they knew what they were doing. And uh, a lot of times if they made one mistake, they'd throw the whole scroll away because they, they revered the Word of God that much. You have the Chester Beatty papyri. Uh, that's named after the person who bought it in, like 19, in the 1930s somewhere. And it dated back to the 2nd century. It contains a large, por- a large portion of the Gospel in Acts. P46 was even a late century find, and uh, it, it contained most of Paul's epistles in the book of Hebrews. One of the, probably the most significant of all of these is what's called the Codex Sinaiticus, and uh, it was discovered in St. Catherine's Monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai, and it dates back to about 350 A.D. Now, what's significant about this is that it contains the entire New Testament. So, before 350, because this was found in 350, they already had the books of the New Testament uh, chosen, and they were already circulating as a complete text as early as 350 A.D. You say, well, boy, that's that's still about 300 years after the original, so, you know, it kind of gives you a lot of wiggle room to, you know, scribes to mess things up. But when you compare that to other the other literature that's floating around, um, it's really early. So let me, as an example, um, Homer Iliads, which was a, a you know a kind of a Bible for philosophers. 
Uh, no one really questions its um, its accuracy, but it was written in, I think, about 600 B.C., and the first uh, known copy was, I think, 800 A.D. And so you're talking over a 1,000 years between the original composition and then the first copy that was found. Uh, there's a 1,000-year difference, and no one really bats an eye with whether that's accurate. But here in the New Testament, you have originally, com you know, com composed in the uh, first century, and by the by the third and fourth century, so you're talking two to three hundred years, we have a complete copy. So, you know, I don't, you know, that's only a two, two and a half, three hundred years compared to Homer Iliads, and there's other ones that you can date, but this, the New Testament is really. Uh, the the one that has the shortest gap of time between the original composition and the first known copy. So we have a lot of confidence. We have a lot of evidence, a lot of attestations, which means a, a, attesting to the uh, original autographs. And so after that, uh, we have what's called the Codex Vaticanus. And uh, that was discovered in the Vatican Library in 1481 A.D., and it contains both Old and New Testaments. And it's dated slightly earlier than the uh, Sinaiticus, so this is another one. And it contains everything, the whole Bible, and, and it actually dates earlier than the Sinaiticus, which was 350, but it wasn't discovered until 1481. So I, I don't know who takes care of the library in the Vatican, but you know, to be able to, to find something that significant blows my mind. And so these are a couple of, of major manuscripts that really lends itself to the, the process of textual criticism, which I'll get into here in a minute. And so another manuscript I think is, I think, very popular, uh, at least back then, was the Latin Vulgate. Now, Jerome was commissioned. His name was actually Eusebius Heronymus, and, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Jerome. And he was tasked by Bishop Damascus of Rome in 383 AD to go out and to make a complete revision of the old Latin copies of the Gospels. And so he does, and he and he finishes not only the 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 New Testament but the Old Testament as well. And uh, it wasn't really considered the Vulgate until the Council of Trent in like 15. Uh, 45 or 55 from one of those, you know, it was, you know, a, a th over a thousand years later, you say, well, what's the Vulgate? What does that got to do? Well, it's just the Latin term Vulgata, and it means the common. So it was really the most common uh, translation of the Bible, common meaning that it was the common in the common language of everybody in that time period in the West, in the, in the, in the church that was West. So over in Europe, they, Latin was the common language. And so, the Latin Bible was the most common Bible and most popular Bible in the church for a thousand years. So that's why if you study theology at all, uh, you're going to run into a lot of Latin terms because for a thousand years in the Western church, uh, that's all they spoke and that's all they wrote. And, and so they had the Latin Vulgate. And so things like words like the Trinity, words like Testament, you know, like the Old Testament, New Testament, the word Testament comes from a, um, a Latin term, uh, um, Oh, the rapture. There you go. The word rapture, another Latin term. So we borrow a lot from Latin and we borrow a lot from the Greek when we're discussing theology in English. So we, we use a lot of their words. And so we, you know, so the Latin Vulgate was another significant manuscript and translation 
that had a significant impact. Now, the, we said, well, I thought Greek was the most common language. It was in the East, like the Middle East and, and, and East. When you go into, you know, uh, Babylon and, and Assyria, you know, you have Greek, Syriac, and Coptic. Now, Coptic was an Egyptian uh, language. And so the, the East spoke Greek, Syriac, and Coptic. The West spoke Latin. And so now when you talk about manuscripts, uh, none of those manuscripts had chapters or verses. You say, well, where did chapters and verses come from? You know, if you used to have a discussion with Paul and say, hey, you know, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, I really like that verse. Paul would have no, absolutely no idea what you're talking about. He never wrote it with chapters and verses. Uh, chapters were the first put in just to make it easier to locate a saying. And uh, it was put in in 1227 A.D. by the Archbishop of Canterbury named Stephen Langston. Uh, and again, the whole system was devised just to make it easier to locate what the sayings were, you know, what a verse was, what a, you know. Um, and then some 200 years later, 300 years later, in 1448 and in 1555, uh, Robert Einstein put in the verses. And so anytime after the 1555, the church, you know, the Bibles that they begin to print had chapters and verses. And it, it's a good resource tool to be able to resource a specific sentence. You know, we call them verses. And so those, you know, those were great contributions by those two gentlemen and ones that I think the church today really appreciate and, and really use uh, to our advantage. And so let's talk a little bit about textual criticism because here's where people can really begin to cast doubt on the New Testament. So, again, the, the argument goes like this. All we have are copies of copies of copies, and there's over 400,000 textual variants within the New Testament. That, that means there's more variances than there are words in the New Testament. So with all those different textual variances and with all the copies of copies, how can we be confident at all that, that what the New Testament we have is, is what was actually given to us? And so the conclusion of like Bart Ehrman, the uh, Jesus, uh, the Jesus uh, movement, um, their conclusion is you can't. You can't trust it. Uh, you know, you can't. Uh, yeah, uh, besides that, Rome kicked out a lot of the books that should have been there, like the Gospel of Thomas. And so the whole New Testament is corrupted by the Roman church and by all of these changes. And so you really can't know. You really can't know. You really can't have any confidence in the New Testament. That's their argument. But let's talk about textual criticism. Now, textual criticism is when you take an older copy and you compare it with a newer copy. So if you have a copy from the 1st century or 2nd century and you have a copy from the 3rd or 4th or 5th century and you compare the same text, uh, the differences that you find are called textual variances. So if the earlier version has... Uh, a word in the and in the in a later version misspells that word. That's a textual variant. It's a it, you know how many of us don't accidentally misspell a word. And when scribes were copying, sometimes their eyes would bounce and they would reduplicate a line or they would leave out a line even. Now those were un um, those were errors that were unintentional errors. And so scribes did do they did have intentional changes. They did make intentional changes. Scribes would oftentimes try and do some interpretation along with their translation. So or they would add commentary. They try to explain what Jesus was saying. And they did they never really made it like 
like, okay, here's commentary. Like in your study Bibles, you have the scripture text and then the commentary underneath. Uh, and, and back when they were translating the New Testament, they would have the commentary along with the Bible, along right beside it. And so you don't know what was scripture and what was commentary by the scribe. So the kind of the rule of thumb is the earlier manuscripts are shorter because over time scribes have attitude to try to explain or try to uh, interpret the text. And so the shorter versions are more than likely what was more like the original autographs, not the longer versions. So for instance, again, you have that second century manuscript and it's, you know, the, you know, uh, Galatians uh, 3 has, I'm, I'm just making all the stuff, I don't have it right before me, it's a, has uh, 10 verses, and this 5th century has uh, 35 verses. Well, you know that there has been quite a bit probably added on, because none of the earlier manuscripts had 35 verses for uh, you know Galatians 3. It's only the later manuscripts. And so sometimes in your Bibles, you'll, you'll see notes on the, on, the, on the side or down below, earlier manuscripts don't contain this. That's what they're meaning. The earlier, the earliest discovered manuscripts don't have that. It was only the later ones that added it. So they added it into our English Bibles just to be on the safe side, but they keep those little notes in there. And I think I appreciate that. Okay. So like the ending of Mark 16, okay. The earliest versions don't have the ending that we have, uh, but they still include it because the later versions did. Okay, so there's kind of being said, but they do make a note. The earliest manuscripts do not have this. So that's what that's talking about. Now, the textual variances, I would say 99.9% of them are spelling errors, errors of location, approximate language. Um, not, there's, there's no textual variant. And I want to make this vitally clear. There is no textual variant that endangers any of the biblical doctrines that we believe as Christians. Not on how to get saved, not on the divinity of Christ, not on the humanity of Christ, not on the uh, virgin birth, not I mean not on the work sake, you know, the 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 you know, he saved by grace through faith. Nothing in the textual variances uh, endangers anything of what we believe. There are only minor changes, minor minor errors. And, uh, you know, if you're reading the newspaper and you catch, a, you know, you catch, the, oh, they misspelled that word, do you chuck out the whole newspaper and say, oh, you can't trust that? You know, look, they misspelled that word. Uh, that's not how it works, right? So if, if there is a mistake and you do catch it, um, there's no sense in, in, in throwing away the whole Bible. So, oh, you can't trust any of it because there's an error here. You don't do that with anything else. Why in the world would you do it with the Word of God? And so the 400,000 variances, um, the reason that number's so high is because there's so many manuscripts. Think about over 6,000 manuscripts. Now, say with Homer Iliad, you have eight copies, and you compare those eight copies. I mean, how many textual variances are you going to find? You're probably not going to find too many because you only have eight copies. The New Testament has 6,000 manuscripts and, and, and uh, uh, fragments. And so, of course, you know, if... if if they misspell a word in the in the second century text, and they translate that a thousand times, the same word a thousand times in other manuscripts, that's a thousand variances. But it's still just the one misspelled word. But because there's so many manuscripts and copies of copies, uh, that counts as a textual variant. So a, a majority of of the four hundred thousand, let's just say Bar Derman's right, 
or things like that. Something that was copied thousands of times. Um, but it's kind of deceiving when you say, well, the, you know, over 400,000 variances, there's more changes than there are words in the New Testament. Um, they, they don't quite tell you the truth that it's a lot of these minor spelling errors copied over thousands of times, and that gives you thousands of variances. And so, um, now let's go, let's switch real quick to our uh, modern day versions. Okay, so the printing press was invented in 1455 in Germany by a guy by the name of Johann Gutenberg. And that really changed the world. It changed the world as we know it. And it really proliferated the Bible. And so one of the uh, versions that was printed really the earliest was the Latin Vulgate. And uh, the Latin Vulgate, uh, again, was the Bible for a thousand years. Uh, the first English Bible was translated from Latin in 1382 by John Wycliffe. And he had, there's a translation company out there called the Wycliffe Translation um, Company. And uh, it's really a ministry. And uh, so he was a priest and an, an Oxford scholar. And the Catholic Church, and I think really the, the government at that time hated him so much, and they burnt all of his Bibles because they were Protestant Bibles. And they, 40 years after he died, they dug him back up and burned him for being a heretic. I mean, that's how bad that they despise this guy. And so, but we owe him a, a really a debt of gratitude. Uh, we have William Tyndale. He translated the New Testament from Greek to English. Now, this is the first time that we actually have Greek being translated into English. And one, I don't know if it was the whole Bible. He translated the New Testament from Greek to English in 1525 and parts of the Old Testament in 1536. Now, he's called the father of modern English because his text was the basis for the King James Version. And we'll get into the King James here in a minute. And so you have the Coverdell Bible, which was published in 1535 by Miles Coverdell, and is the first complete English Bible. Both Old New Testament complete was done by Miles Coverdell. Now, these are just names you probably, if you're a Christian, you might have heard over time. If you're not, then, you know, you're learning something new. Um, in 1555, you had a significant thing happen. Queen Mary bans all Protestant translations of the Bible and even burns them. And not only did she burn the Bible, but she burned over 300 men, women, and children at the stake for having these Protestant Bibles and for being Protestant. And hence, she got the nickname Bloody Mary. Now, I think now it's the name of a drink. But um, that's, that's where... And so what happened is a lot of the scholars got away from Britain, and they all ended up in Geneva, Switzerland. And in 1560, they published the Geneva Bible. Now, the Geneva Bible was a revision of what's called the Great Bible, which was an earlier translation. <coughs> Excuse me. And it contains commentary from John Calvin and his, uh, uh, his successor, Theodore Beza, and a guy by the name of John Knox. Uh, and they were all Reformed theologians, which meaning they, they, they were not Catholic. They were, re they were Protestants. And the, and the first Protestant group were called Reformed uh, because they were part of the Reformation. And so, um, and, and um, a short time later, King James takes the throne, and he does not like the Reformed uh, Protestant commentary in the Geneva Bible, so he commissions 52 scholars to make another translation other than the, you know, it's like the it's like the Geneva Bible but without all the commentary, and so in 1611 the King James Bible was completed, 
and uh, and it has been from that time till now uh, probably the most well known Bible, just because for several centuries it was kind of the premier English uh, text, English Bible. It, uh, if you used to pick up a sixteen eleven copy, uh, you would probably not be able to read very much of it. It's very old English. They made a revision in seventeen eighty nine, somewhere around there. And that's the text we have today. You know, if you used to pick up a, a King James version, it would be from that 1789 revision. And so, from but from the King James came, uh, or after the King James, should say, came all of our modern versions, right? It's translations. You have the RSV, the Jerusalem Bible, Living Bible, the NASB. I like the 95 version, the NIV, the New King James, the ESV, NLT. Yeah, you name it. There's a lot of translations out there now, but it all started really from papyrus, you know, from scrolls, papyrus, the codex, undergone a, a lot, you know, it, it, we owe a debt of gratitude and we stand on the shoulders of those who paid the price for us to have an English Bible. And so I hope that, and, and, and here's, here's what I say, maybe, you're, maybe something I said makes you struggle to really believe, I know the New Testament reliable, um, I believe that the Bible's reliable because I believe it's God's word and God, the Holy Spirit, I believe superintended the whole process so that what we have in our Bibles is exactly what God wants us to have. I have confidence in that. I put my life on that. And so again, does early manuscripts contain Mark 16? I, they don't. The later ones do. Does that mean we should put it in? It's in there. And I'm okay with that. If, it, if, if God didn't want that in there, he would have made a way for that not to make it, like he did all these other books. And so be confident that what we have, God superintended the process. And though it might have been messy, there were errors, all kinds of things, we, what we possess in our possession is God's word. And so I hope that you will have confidence today in that. And I thank you for tuning in. Next session, we're going to really talk about getting in now into proper bibliology. We'll talk about revelation. We'll talk about, you know, inerrancy. We'll talk about infallibility. We'll talk about how the books of the New Testament was chosen. Again, you know, uh, a lot of error sometimes, a lot of misrepresenting goes on. We'll take care of that in the, in the coming sessions. So until then, thank you and be blessed.